the night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. The reason that most people don't know about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is that it was deliberately covered up for nearly 100 years. It was kept out of textbooks. It was uh, whitewashed. Civics and city officials in Tulsa in 1921 set out on a deliberate campaign of silence to silence people after this massacre, which, as you said, is one of the most terrific single acts of racial terror committed against black people in U.S. history. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Greenwood District of Tulsa, which was also known, and some people refer to it as the Black Wall Street. Individuals at that time, they said, we weren't really Wall Street. We were just Main Street. Mm -hmm. We were a black Main Street with very successful businesses. We had stores. We had hotels. We had everything. We didn't need to go, as one individual said, we don't need to go uptown to get what we needed because we had it. We had all of those particular kinds of stores, mm-hmm. and some people call it a riot. It wasn't a riot. We're, we're calling it like it was a massacre, just, one of the uh, most horrific kinds of events that has take, taken place against citizens in the United States. And on the line, we have Deneen Brown, who's an award-winning staff writer for the Washington Post, associate professor of journalism at the University of Maryland, Philip Merrill College of Journalism. When I say award-winning, she's award-winning. She happens to be folks – Right now, in her car, on Black Wall Street, in Tulsa, Hmm. Deneen, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was really captivated by your article in the National Geographic, which just came out, and you're very gracious to talk to us here about the Tulsa race massacre. And why don't people know about this, Deneen? The reason that most people don't know about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre is that it was deliberately covered up for nearly 100 years. It was kept out of textbooks. It was uh, whitewashed civics and city officials in Tulsa in 1921 set out on a deliberate campaign of silence to silence people after this massacre, which, as you said, is one of the most terrific single acts of racial terror committed against black people in U.S. history. They did not want word of the massacre getting out. 
because they called it a, quote, embarrassment for a city that had promoted itself as the oil capital of the world. So again, it was deliberately left out of textbooks. It wasn't taught about in schools. White people stopped talking about it after the massacre. Uh, there was a conspiracy of silence. And then black people, those who survived it, would often only whisper about it because there was concern that it might happen again. Now, give a little overview. Would you give us a little overview on exactly what happened and why this is important? Have people understand why this is a massacre and not a riot? So in terms of what happened back in 1921, the story, you have to know that Greenwood was an all-black town or community in North Tulsa. It was established around the turn of the century by black men, some of them just out of enslavement, who came to Oklahoma to build new life, to seek freedom and prosperity. They established this community of Greenwood. It was bustling. It had hotels. It had a savings and loan. It had theaters. It had a nationally recognized school, Booker T. Washington High School, where students, black students were taught by professors with doctorates. There were black millionaires who drove Model T cars. There were black people who owned oil wells. It was this prosperous all-black community that was segregated from the white side of Tulsa. So the story goes on May 31st, I'm sorry, on May 30th, 1921, a black teenager who called himself Dick Rowland, he was working as a shoe shiner in downtown Tulsa shining shoes, making a lot of money, polishing the shoes of these oil men. And historians say that Dick Rowland walked over to the Drexel building, which was the only building in downtown Tulsa where black people could use the bathroom because of racial segregation. He gets on an elevator with a white elevator operator. She's also a teenager. She's 17. Her name is Sarah Page. It's a wire caged elevator, so you could see right through it. But when the doors open, Sarah, the white teenage operator, shrieks and Dick Rowland runs. And a store clerk in that building heard Sarah shriek. Now, I have to stop the story there because a lot of historians and Dick Rowland's family say that they were, like, in love, starstruck teenagers. They loved each other. But at the time, you have to understand, in 1921, it was socially forbidden for a black teenager or white teenager to be in love. So that's why Dick Rowland runs. Later, he's arrested in Greenwood, and he is charged on false charges of assaulting Sarah Page. And I say they're false because Sarah Page later sent a letter to the prosecuting attorney saying nothing happened in the elevator. Historians say that Dick Rowland probably stepped on her foot or bumped her or nothing really happened in the elevator, but he's accused of rape. And the Tulsa Tribune runs a headline that says, Nab Negro for assault of a girl on elevator. That was the headline that ran in the Tulsa Tribune on May 31st, 1921. And it was essentially a whistle call for 
the white mob in Tulsa, which at that time was a hotbed for the Klan, the headline was the whistle call for white people to go to the courthouse where Dick Rowland was taken. And so thousands of white people went to the courthouse demanding that Dick Rowland be released, and their intention was to lynch him. And I just have to step back for a second because a lynching had occurred in Tulsa previously. Lynching was an extrajudicial act of racial terror committed against black people all across this country. All it took was an accusation for a black man to be lynched. So this was not far-fetched. So, again, the white mob is at the courthouse demanding that Dick Rowland be released to them for lynching. And black veterans in Greenwood hear that Dick Rowland has been arrested. And you have to know that these black veterans had just come back from World War I, where they had fought for democracy in Europe, and they knew how to fight. They wanted to be treated with respect and humanity. And so they hear that Dick Rowland has been arrested, taken to the courthouse. They go to the courthouse, and they say, no, you will not lynch Dick Rowland. You will not lynch this teenager. No, this is not going to happen on our watch. So what happened was there was a confrontation between the white mob and these black veterans. A white man went up to one of the black veterans and said, what are you going to do with that gun N-word? And the black veteran says, I'm going to use it if I have to. A shot goes off, and then survivors say, all hell broke loose. So I can stop there, but I, I want to tell you what happens next. If you want to ask a question, or I can continue talking. <laughs> wow. No, you're good. You're good. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So after the shot goes off and all hell breaks loose, there's a gun battle between these black veterans and members of the white mob as the black veterans are retreating back to across the railroad tracks into Greenwood, which again is a black community. The black veterans are trying to defend their community against this white mob, but the white mob eventually descend on Greenwood, and they began looting, burning, and shooting black people in cold blood. They shot black men, women, children. They would light houses afire, and then when black people would run out, they would shoot at them. Their reports that white men took private, went up in private airplanes and dropped turpentine bombs on Greenwood. So you'll see pictures from 1920 of, of smoke billowing out of the top of houses and buildings in Greenwood, out of the rooftop. And again, began on May 31st, 1921, and continues into June 1st, 1921. So in that span of time, as many as 300 black people are killed, according to historians, as many and more, or maybe more than 800 black people are injured, according to Red Cross records, which I've read, more than 1,200 houses and businesses and Greenwood that are owned by black people are destroyed, and more than 10,000 black people and Greenwood are left without their homes. So when you look at pictures of Greenwood on June 1st, 1921, 
it's smoldering. The buildings are leveled. It looks like a bomb went off. And then the black people who have survived and are still inside Greenwood because some of the black people fled during the night for the surrounding black towns and they got on trains, they got out of here. But those who were still in Greenwood on that day, June 1st, 1921, were rounded up by the National Guard at gunpoint. And they were marched through the streets of Greenwood to what they call concentration camps. That is not my word. It's a word that the black people in 1921 used. They said concentration camps or internment camps in the city of Tulsa. They were marched at gunpoint to the convention center, convention hall, I'm sorry, to the fairgrounds where they were kept under lock and key for weeks after this massacre. And they were not allowed to leave unless a white person vouched for them. And so what would happen is um, a white person, say a white employer is missing a housekeeper or driver or laborer, they might go to the fairgrounds and say, I'm vouching for Mr. Jones over there. And then they could check him out. And then um, you see pictures of black people after the massacre walking through the the streets, they might have a ribbon on their suit jacket saying under police protection, which means that they had been vouched for by a white person. In the midst of all of this, survivors say that the city dumped the bodies of black people who were killed in this massacre into mass graves or dumped the bodies in the river or put the bodies on train cars heading out of town. We don't know where those bodies went, Uh. honestly. That's what's happening in Tulsa now. The city of Tulsa has begun a search for mass graves of black people who were killed during the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Was that part of the uh, Tulsa commissions that spurred that on. I know you were pretty much involved with the discovery of the mass graves and where they might be located. Okay, I'll tell you that story. In 1997, the state of Oklahoma formed a commission. It was then called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. It was charged by the state of Oklahoma back in 1997 to investigate the Tulsa Race riot. It was called, at that time, it was called a riot. Mm. And so they had these historians, they had scientists and descendants and survivors all trying to put together, piece together what happened during the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. They investigated, they researched, they talked to many of the survivors who were still living at the time and really tried to document what happened in 1921. This commission released a report in 2001 concluding that the survivors who were still alive at that time should be paid reparations. They also, the commission also said that the city should excavate for mass graves, which had been found, which scientists, actually back then scientists had scanned Oakland Cemetery and Booker T. Washington Cemetery and other places in Tulsa with ground-penetrating radar, searching with ground-penetrating radar for what may look like mass 
grades underneath the ground. So this, these scientists found what they called anomalies that were consistent with mass grades. But, of course, they could not conclusively determine that they were mass grades unless they actually physically excavated. So, again, this Tulsa Race Riot Commission released its report in 2001 saying that the city should pay reparations to survivors and also excavate these anomaly sites for mass graves. But the mayor of Tulsa then, Susan Savage, closed the investigation without excavating. And also the city did not pay reparations. And so that investigation was closed and it went dormant. The whole thing went dormant for nearly 20 years. And so... What happens with me, my personal connection to the story, is in 2018, I I had been sent by the Washington Post to cover the lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, and I wrote the story about the lynching memorial, which mm-hmm. is profound mm-hmm. and just beautiful and striking and sad, but it pays homage to 4,000 black people who were lynched from 1877 to 1950, all across this country. So I'd written that story in Montgomery, Alabama, filed the story. It was published in the Washington Post. I flew back from Montgomery, Alabama to Washington. And then from Washington, I was taking a trip to my university, University of Kansas and Lawrence, where I had a board of trustees meeting. And from Lawrence, Kansas, I drove to Wichita to see my mom and my sisters. And then from Wichita, I drove to Tulsa to see my father lives here in Tulsa. And the reason I'm telling the story is so that you, you have a chronology of how I, as a reporter, got started writing stories about the Tulsa race massacre. I am from Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma. My dad lives in Tulsa. My great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. And my paternal grandmother was born in an all-black town called Boley, 60 miles from Tulsa. So I always say my people are from Oklahoma, so this is where I was born. So I come to visit my dad in Tulsa, and I say to my dad, let's go have lunch on Black Wall Street. And we come down here, this is 2018, and we visit the Greenwood Cultural Center, and then we have lunch at this little soul food cafe right on Black Wall Street, which is where I am now, and I look around and I say, I see a minor league baseball stadium, I see a luxury apartment complex, I see a yoga studio, yogurt shop, and I say to myself, wow, Black Wall Street, the site of a massacre, is being gentrified. It, it was just a contradiction to me, and again, having just been in Montgomery, Alabama, where they built this beautiful, peaceful place to thousands of lynching victims. I just saw it as a contrast. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yes. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I, after just seeing that, I finished my visit with my dad. I fly back to Washington. And I'm just talking to my editor in Washington, Linda Robinson, at the Washington Post about my trip to Tulsa. And I said, it looks like Black Wall Street, the site of this horrible massacre, is being gentrified there's all this development and my editor who's really good said that's a great story Denine. that's a great story 
and the Washington Post sent me back to Tulsa to begin officially reporting the story of the massacre in 2018. Like, what was going on? What happened with the commission? Why was the investigation closed? So I, as a reporter, started investigating and asking those questions as a reporter on the ground. And I spent time with activists on the ground like Christy Williams and then Reverend Turner at Vernon AME Church. I talked to Council Member Vanessa Hall Harper, just asking those questions. And then as a reporter, they took me on various sites throughout Greenwood. And at one point, they made me get out of the car. So this is before the pandemic. I had to get out of the car and walk with my hands raised like the black people had walked in 1921 down the streets of Tulsa with my hands raised to the convention hall. And they wanted me to experience that walk to really get a sense of what it must have felt like for the black people in 1921. So I did that. And there's a point I always tell my students, there's a point when you're reporting the story where you reach a clear point of comprehension and understanding. And that's when it's like Eureka. That's when you understand it like clicks. This is what it must have felt like. And you begin to feel what those people must have felt in 1921. That's a great point. They also took me to Oakland Cemetery and they said also made me get out of the car. And this is where that commission in, in 2001 found anomalies consistent with mass graves, but they never dug for them. They never tried to discover them. And so I, as a reporter, really understood the story at that point. And I flew back to Washington. I wrote the story. It was published in September of 2018 on the front page of the Washington Post. A day later, there was a community meeting in Tulsa and the mayor was talking about plans for development in North Tulsa, which incorporates Greenwood. And in the back of that meeting stood Reverend Turner and he held my story up and he said to the mayor, you wouldn't have this land to develop had there not been the massacre in 1921. And that's when Mayor Bynum announced that he would reopen the search for mass graves. Great. My last question for you is, what do you believe the residents of Greenwood today and the descendants of the massacre would want people to know? Okay, so according to my reporting, you have to remember I'm still journalist working on the story, but according to my reporting, those descendants and the three survivors, in fact, I was just at a parade where three survivors, there are 107, one Viola Fletcher, Mrs. Viola Fletcher is 107 years old, she's a survivor, her brother is 100 years old, he's a survivor, and Lessie Benningfield Randall, who's 106, they're the last known living survivors of this massacre. And they were just in a parade right here on Black Wall Street 
to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the massacre. They rode in a white carriage drawn by a white horse, and they just waved to the crowd. They were leading a procession. And so what they've asked for is reparations. They've asked for atonement, an apology. They want an acknowledgement of what happened in 1921 and an acknowledgement that what was lost in that massacre was lives and generational wealth. And so they are demanding reparations be paid to the survivors and to descendants of survivors of that 1921 Tulsa race massacre. It's a reprehensible kind of thought. That can even happen. And the fact that it happened in the 20th century and the fact that issues still like that are continuing in in a variety of different kinds of ways is just horrific. I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know you've been very busy today, especially around this time of the anniversary. And uh, your article is unbelievable. Listeners, you need to check out the National Geographic issue this month of June of 2021. We've been talking to Deneen Brown, award-winning staff writer for The Washington Post, associate professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. Deneen, thanks very much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. wish we had more time with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your show. I appreciate it. Deneen. My name is Viola Ford Fletcher. I'm the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm the sister of Hughes Van Ellis, who is also here today. I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. Today, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. On May 31st in 21, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood, neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, humanity, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood had given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not, and other survivors do not, and our descendants do not. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting 
the war effort in the shipyards of California. But most of my life, I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day, I can barely afford my everyday needs. All the while, the city of this Tulsa have unjustly used the names and stories of victims like me to enrich myself and its white allies through the 30s million, through the 30s million ways by the Tulsa Centennial Commissioner while I was continue to live in poverty. I am 107 year old and have never been seen justice. I pray that one day I will. I have been blessed with a long life and have seen the best and the worst of this country. I think about the terror, horror inflicted upon black people in this country every day. This subcontinuing committee has the power to lead us down a better path. I'm asking that my country acknowledge what has been happened to me, the tremors and the pain, the loss, and I ask the survivors and descendants to be given the chance to seek, seek justice, open the door. All of you know how easy it is to deny that, that a violent mob threatened your lives and took your property. For 70 years, the city of Tulsa and its stream of chummers told us that the massacre didn't happen like we didn't see it with our own eyes. You have, <coughs> have me here right now. You see Mother Randall, you see my brother, Hughes Van Ellis. We live this history, and we can't ignore it. it it's our lives with us. Oh, my goodness. We lost everything that day, our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America and for all, for all the people. No one cared about us for almost a hundred years. We and our history have been forgotten, washed away. This Congress must recognize us and our history. For black America, for the white Americans, and for all Americans, with that some justice. Thank you. <laughs> we are glad you decided to listen to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. We know there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and we are glad that you have chosen to listen to us. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.